0: Hi everyone, Daniel McCormack, Head of Research for Macquarie Asset Management here, and, and welcome to our, our podcast today on digital infrastructure. I'm joined by two colleagues, firstly Aijan Meldebeck, who is a research analyst in the Macquarie Asset Management research team and author of a recent comprehensive pathways document on the sector, which I would refer you to if you would, if you would like more detail. Aijan, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Daniel
0: and Lincoln Heilner, who's part of our Digital Infrastructure Investment Team in the Americas. Lincoln, great to have you with us. Thanks, Dan. Great to be here. Ajahn, you know, perhaps we can start with you and and just some context for the audience. You know, from a long-run perspective, the the digital slash technology slash internet space has grown, you know, very, very rapidly in, in recent decades. Could you just give the audience a sense of of you know where the sector has has come from and the kind of growth rates that we've seen
2: yes
1: so um thank you and that's right so the sector has been growing very rapidly and the primary reason for for this rapid growth is of course the digital transformation in pretty much every sector of the economy that we look at so from banking to healthcare and education and just to give a, a bit of a background is that the adoption of the internet has been just phenomenal. So once it was open to the public back in 1989, um, it was only about half a percent of the world's population that was online. While today it's more about 60% of people uh, use the internet on a daily basis. And of course, this is being reflected in the internet traffic growth, which has been almost doubling every year. So if we look at it, Like three decades ago, the internet traffic was about 100 gigabytes per day, which roughly equates to just 100 households watching Netflix for an hour. But today, the internet traffic is about 150,000 gigabytes per second. So the growth across um, internet adoption, subscriptions, and uh, traffic has been just very, very strong.
0: Lincoln, just turning to data growth specifically and, and in recent years we've seen some really rapid growth in in data um so sort of over the last five to ten years what has been what have been the main drivers of of that growth in data
3: yeah i think it's a lot of kind of the um you know the digitalization trends that that I, Jean mentioned you know um you know video being a being a really important one but i also think it's it's a function of um, you know, the nature of our interaction with devices and the amount of, of um, you know, the, the very basic functions in our lives that now deal with phones or computers, whether that's, you know, TikTok or Microsoft Office, or, you know, the amount of data that um, is created from, uh, you know, monitoring maintenance on an aircraft. I, I think the really interesting thing is that in a lot of ways, that growth is is tied to technology and infrastructure like nobody would use instagram if they didn't have a a high-speed wireless mobile phone network so in a way what we've seen is really the the improvement of technology and the deployment of infrastructure whether that's wireless networks whether that's fiber whether that's data centers has really facilitated a total change and i think the way that you know a lot of us live our lives and work and play so so to me that's the real thing that's changed in the last five or ten years is the, the sort of the use case and the infrastructure has aligned, um, which has just re- resulted in this explosion of of data use.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's just no doubt that it's absolutely foundational to our to our work lives and our personal lives now. I mean, we just sort of couldn't do without this this sector, which is, um, you know, which is a stark change from sort of 30 or 40 years ago. Ojan, if we look ahead what what is the sort of outlook for data growth generally and what are some of the technologies out there that could you know continue to drive rapid growth in data going forward
1: yes so a lot of these trends that Lincoln just mentioned are expected to continue growing at strong rates Um, let's say double digit rate for videos that then the growth just in general for video content is going to accelerate uh, due to longer viewing times and new types of streaming, such as virtual reality, for example. And also in addition to data consumption by people, uh, the traffic is likely to be driven by the automation of processes, uh, the use of internet of things, robotics in manufacturing. Uh, We also have digital twins and and many other applications. And if we look beyond, let's say 2025, there is also a number of new data intensive applications that could be coming. And here we talk about uh, autonomous vehicles of higher level, the metaverse, the industry uh, 5.0. So there is just a lot of applications that are expected to come and just accelerate uh, in general the data generation consumption uh not only traffic
0: yeah i think if some of those applications you know do what's what's promised we'll sort of be in a in a sea of sea of data if you think we're living in in a sort of data intense world now um it could be it could be um even more intense in in sort of a decade from now I know in the paper that you wrote, Ajahn, you, you know you did some work looking at the resilience of data growth to economic downturns. Could you could you just talk the audience through that that analysis?
1: Yes, uh, sure. So in the latest Pathways report, we looked at how mobile and fixed broadband subscriptions were impacted during the Great Financial Crisis and um, COVID nineteen, and during both periods, the growth in subscriptions was positive despite. The economic downturn. So during the GFC, mobile and big subscriptions increased by about 15% each. And during COVID, thick subscriptions increased by uh, mid-single digit, while mobile increased by half a percent. But I think what is what is interesting is that in many sectors, GDP growth is the driver of the sector expansion, while in digital infrastructure the structural dynamics is actually so strong. So it's it's almost the reverse. For example, broadband adoption has actually um, contributed on average uh, 0.3% to GDP growth annually over the past 15 years. So I, I think that's, that's the reflection of how strong the structural dynamics are currently in the sector.
0: Yeah. Yeah, got it. OK. Great, thanks both. Let's let's just turn to the assets themselves. And I know here at Macquarie we sort of break the sector down into three subsectors, data centers, wireless infrastructure and then wireline assets. And maybe let's start with with data centers and 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 Lincoln, you know, my sort of crude understanding before diving into this space in some detail was that a data center was was a data center, but but that's just you know, very much not the case. Could could you just talk the audience through, you know, the different types of data centers, and and particularly, you know, w- what a hyperscale data center is, and how that differs from a co-location data center?
3: Yeah, sure. I think at least in the United States, we sort of break them into into three buckets, um, which are hyperscale and colocation, as you mentioned, and 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 I think the third one being sort of these uh, interconnection focused data centers. So uh, hyperscale, you know, really kind of, as it is, says in the name, are, are just really big facilities. You know, I think we probably think of it as, um, you know, no less than 30 or 40 megawatts, um, which with each customer in the, in those facilities taking, you know, a megawatt or more. And, 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 you know, these customers are like highly sophisticated technology companies, you know, companies that rely on uh, the computers in that facility to do business. Now, easy example of that, like, uber you know to call a car that's all happening in data centers so their data center needs to be working right in order for their revenue generation model to succeed so uh, these facilities are absolutely critical um, to those customers um, so you know they really have a very high level of resiliency and sophistication and also connectivity because you know these guys are off, often operating you know highly complex networks so um, you know their location is really important. Now, co-location data centers are, are more the sorts of facilities where, you know, a customer like Macquarie, you know, we're moving our email servers out of the office. Um, you know, we have probably some more cloud hosted applications. So it's important stuff, but, you know, it's not as sort of, it's not as critical from a location perspective um, or a revenue generation perspective than, than you know, like a, like a Google or something like that. Um, and and they're often you know they're just a little smaller and, and probably less sophisticated. you know, customers buy via a cabinet or a couple kilowatts, as opposed to, as I said, sort of the megawatt scale of the hyperscalers. And then finally, I think in the United States, you know we have these sort of interconnection focused data centers, which are the places where all of the various different telecommunications networks kind of meet and exchange traffic. Because to me, that's what the internet is. It's a it's a, it's a, it's a way of uh, moving information across a whole bunch of different networks. So these are highly connected, highly centralized facilities where um, you know, that connectivity ecosystem um, is just really important and hard to replicate.
0: Got it. Um, Thanks. And, and, and you know, we hear a lot about edge computing uh, these days and that this is the sort of growth area in the space, you know, Could you just explain to the audience what is edge computing and, and what role does it play within the digital infrastructure sector?
1: Yeah, sure. So edge computing simply refers to bringing computation closer to the end user. And let's say at the moment when one accesses the cloud, the request has to travel all the way to a centralized location that can be pretty much anywhere in the world. But with edge computing, the processing can be done locally. Um, and actually I, IBM predicts that uh, 50% of enterprise data will be processed at the edge in the next five years. Uh, so what it means for digital infrastructure is that uh, first There is an emerging type of uh, these smaller scale facilities called edge data centers, which could be considered um, as a let's say force type to uh, in addition to what Lincoln mentioned. And then, um, and second, what it means is that these facilities will uh, probably require even denser uh, fiber uh, connectivity. And although there is Quite limited use case today for let's say edge data centers, but going forward, the demand for them is likely to accelerate because of the new upcoming um, applications that will require low latency to operate.
0: Got it. Thanks for that. um So let's let's maybe turn to to now to wireless infrastructure. So so towers and and Ajahn, I know you know in Europe there's been a sort of structural realignment in the in the tower space. Um, you know, could, could you talk to the audience about, you know, what, what has happened here and, and why that sort of realignment has, has occurred?
1: Uh, yes, uh, sure. So, indeed, so in Europe, there has been quite a lot of activity in, in the tower space. And this is because mobile uh, network operators continue to divest um, tower infrastructure and the market of independent uh, tower companies or tower cores uh, continues to grow. So, and the reason for this is that divesting towers can be beneficial for both mobile operators because they can raise substantial proceeds from the sale and optimize their capital structure. But there are also benefits for tower companies uh, because they can, as standalone companies, they can have a higher tenancy ratio and by locating like, more than one operator on the same tower, it means potentially uh, higher profits. And also from the valuation perspective, standalone tower companies are typically valued um, stronger, allowing them better access to capital and growth. But yeah, in Europe, um, the, the process is uh, slightly behind uh, than the US, which the US, I would say, is much more advanced in this space already.
0: Yeah, right. So, so it's about the right assets being managed by the right people, with the right right type of capital behind it is that is that essentially essentially what we're saying?
1: Yes, exactly. So also the business model is probably much more aligned with how um, investors in private markets would view these assets
0: yeah. Yeah. Okay. And and, you know, you mentioned that the U.S. market is 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 a little bit different and a bit more mature. Lincoln, could you just touch on how the U.S. tower market differs to the to the European one?
3: Yeah, I think, as I mentioned, you know, a lot of the things that I think we're seeing in Europe um, happening now just happened, you know, 15 and 20 years ago in the United States where. The carriers were you know facing sort of the 3g build out and were were very capital constrained and they looked at these tower assets and, and viewed them as an asset to to be monetized um and um you know they sold them to third parties which sort of gave birth to the to the independent tower industry um and then you know as time has gone on you've sort of seen the the growth of call it neutral infrastructure where people co-locate in each other's towers and you know, I think that's contributed to a very sort of vibrant and robust, um, you know, competitive dynamic here from a, from a mobile network perspective. Um, but I think, you know, what that also means is, look, there have been three very large listed power operators that have been around for a long time, um, and they've been, you know, very actively consolidating the power market um, in the United States. So, um, you know, the, the opportunity, I think, is for private capital is just a little bit more limited here because of that, um, that dynamic.
0: Yeah right. Okay, let's let's turn to fibre, uh, and you know this is an area where <clears throat> there's been huge growth in recent years, particularly you know, and I'm thinking about Europe here, Aijan, in terms of the private capital involvement in the in the space. I mean, could you talk about you know why that's happening? Is is it a story similar to towers where? Um, you know, companies are divesting an asset and, and placing it in the hands of people who are specialists in the space, and and having capital backing it that is that is suitable to the time horizon for these assets. Is it is it a similar dynamic?
1: Yes, Daniel. So again, here we talk about Europe where this dynamic is uh, is very obvious. So. In Europe, there is a trend of separation of network companies from the integrated telecom operators. And, and the reason behind it is similar in a way to the tower story which we just described. So an independent fixed network company or a netco is likely to uh, improve their network monetization by operating on an open access wholesale model Um, But what is also important um, here is that with the fiber rollout today, the payback period could be um, 10 years or maybe even more, uh, which, which is, again, much more aligned with how long-term investors in private markets look at assets. So there is more alignment from the investor perspective, which in turn, um, again, improves access to private capital and also unlocks that potential growth that uh, could be coming from the demand for high-speed connectivity.
0: Yeah, uh, got it and and lincoln just on on the u s market um again it's it's quite different in this area isn't it and the and the cable the history of it is different, and the cable operators make it make it a slightly different market um could you could you just explain that to us
3: yeah I, I think it's a couple of things so um the the cable operators are a really big one, so um you know where i think in Europe you know there was a more or in recent years, there's been much more full fiber rollout because you know, the, the demand for high-speed internet has surpassed sort of what the old legacy copper plant could provide. Here in the United States, you kind of have approximately 80, 85% of the country has a, you know, access to a, a coaxial uh, cable connection, which will deliver you know, perfectly adequate speeds. Um, so you know, o- only really now are you seeing the demand for fiber over cable um, beginning to, to crop up. Um, and the dynamic that we face is, you know, this is a, this is a deregulated competitive telecom environment. So there may be multiple providers of cable in a given market. There'll certainly be, you know, a cable and a fiber operator. And then there'll also be sort of the old legacy telephone operators who are seeking to upgrade their plants to fiber. So, you have a much more, well, you'll be in a position where you have a, a lot more competition between wireline operators. So, you know, the, I think the incentive for that separation of of Netco and, um, you know, call it uh, the ISP doesn't really exist here because you have, you know, at least two and possibly more, um, you know, infrastructure owners really competing for, uh, for market share.
0: Yeah, right. Um- and, and Lincoln, just you know, do you think it's the case that, as we've seen, sort of the infrastructure assets of telco companies spin out, so towers, and you know, fiber in recent years, you know, in the, in the U.S. slash slash Europe, I mean, was was it the case that? you know these assets were just kind of undervalued before their infrastructure characteristics under recognized and now that they've moved formally into the infrastructure space and managed by professional infrastructure managers we've been able to sort of realize that that value is is that is that a fair characterization of it
3: oh i think it's it's more the the transition to fiber is a critical part of that because previously the infrastructure in place i don't think had the longevity to um, you know, meet the criteria that kind of we talk about when we talk about infrastructure. You know, like the, the 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 old legacy copper plant. You know, that's a dying business, and I think even cable is being rapidly surpassed. And people recognize the need for fiber. It's a differentiated connection solution. So I think a, as an infrastructure investor, the opportunity here is to you know invest in fiber, which is a very long term asset, which really looks frankly like a utility um Now there'll be more competition than there is for a you know a, a an electricity or a water company, but you know we're investing in kind of fifty year assets here, but that's a unique sort of time in the market right now that 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 didn't exist in the past, so I think that transition to fiber is a critical part of that story in the united states
0: yeah yeah okay all right um and you know just just to move to our sort of final topic like uh, net zero um you know this this sector has been a you know quite sizable uh, producer of, of carbon emissions given given the growth in it and um, if we're going to get to net zero by by 2050 you know some things some things probably need to change. Ajahn, could could you just talk to us about you know how how big the problem is you know how much carbon does this sector actually produce?
1: Yes. Thank you, Daniel. That's actually a very good question. And it it could be surprising to some people, but digital infrastructure is likely accounting for as much greenhouse gas emission as the aviation sector. So although the estimates vary, of course, but the sector could be emitting up to 1.9 gigatons of CO2 equivalent per year. But what is... I think more important is that uh, data traffic is growing very rapidly, and over time, digital infrastructure may increasingly contribute to a larger share of emissions, unless unless they take action and improve energy efficiency and source power from renewable sources.
0: Yeah, yeah, and 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 Lincoln, what what can the sector do to to reduce emissions? What are the sort of you know key. Key changes or, or steps that it can it can take to to lower uh, its, its carbon output.
3: Yeah, it's definitely a challenge, um, but I think there's there's a there's a couple of things. First, from a from a sort of a fixed line perspective, the transition to fiber is a really good thing because it's just much less power intensive than the old copper um, networks. But uh, as a, the real source of emissions in this industry is data centers. Um, you know, which is the power drawn by the computing equipment that ten- our tenants put in these data centers. So it's a difficult one because, in some ways, you know, we're not going to tell our customer what computer to use. It's up to them, and you know, that kind of determines the the overall power draw. But what we can do is make sure we're investing in you know the most efficient facilities possible that are cooling these computers efficiently, that are providing uninterrupted power. Um, You know, in in a really efficient manner. And I think, you know, kind of to me, the ultimate prize is, you know, these customers are always looking for green energy solutions, but the nature of the data center is that reliability is just absolutely critical. So, you know, to the extent that we can help develop solutions and technologies that, um, you know, allow for the marrying of renewable uh, renewable energy and data centers, I think that's a really powerful dynamic, and you know that involves a lot of things. that Involve battery technology, um, you know, other energy storage opportunities. But to to me, that's the opportunity. In the f- future is how can we partner with our customers um, in order to give them what they want, which is green energy, and which is also what we want, which is you know a more sustainable business model.
0: Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. Um- Thanks very much, both. I mean, it's a it's a fascinating sector, uh, growing, you know, very rapidly, only becoming more important in our lives and a, and a bigger part of our lives. So, I'm sure we're going to hear plenty more about it in the in the years to come. But but thank you both. Uh, for your time today and, and to the audience, thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to know more about the space, please don't hesitate to reach out to your Macquarie sales representative. They can they can point you in the right direction in terms of possibly getting the Pathways paper or or giving you some more information in general. Otherwise, lastly, just thanks very much for listening.
2: This recording is intended for financial professionals and institutional investors only. This is not intended for use with the general public. The views expressed in this podcast represent those of the speaker and are subject to change. Nothing presented should be construed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security or follow any investment technique or strategy and does not constitute advice, an advertisement, an invitation, a confirmation, an offer or a solicitation to engage in any investment activity or an offer of any banking or financial service. Throughout this presentation, various securities and companies are referenced. Examples given are for illustrative purposes only and were not chosen based on performance. This is not a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principle. All examples herein are for illustrative purposes only and there can be no assurance that any particular investment objectives will be realized or any investment strategy seeking to achieve such objective will be successful. Past performance is not a reliable indication of future performance. Before acting on any information, you should consider the appropriateness of it with regard to your particular objectives, financial situation and needs, and seek advice. No representation or warranty expressed or implied is made as to the accuracy or completeness of the information, opinions, and conclusions presented. In preparing this recording, Reliance has been placed without independent verification on the accuracy and the completeness of all information available from external sources. Macquarie Asset Management is the marketing name for the Asset Management Division of Macquarie Group. Investment products and advisory services are distributed and offered by and referred through affiliates, which include Delaware Distributors LP, a registered broker-dealer and member of the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, and Macquarie Investment Management Business Trust, a Securities and Exchange Commission registered investment advisor. Investment advisory services are provided by a series of Macquarie Investment Management Business Trusts. Other than Macquarie Bank Limited, none of the entities noted in this podcast are authorized deposit-taking institutions for the purposes of the Banking Act of 1959 from the Commonwealth of Australia. The obligations of these entities do not represent deposits or other liabilities of Macquarie Bank Limited. Macquarie Bank Limited does not guarantee or otherwise provide assurance in respect of the obligations of these entities unless noted otherwise.